got your Bibles, want you to turn with me to the book of Philippians. We are studying this book. We have entitled this study, Gospel Impact. That as you and I not only are changed by the power of the gospel, coming to that point of salvation and experiencing forgiveness and a new life in Christ, but as we grow in our knowledge of the gospel, as it continues to permeate our life, and we continue to grow and figure out how to live this out. It changes everything. And tonight, or this morning, we want to talk about how it changes the idea of prayer. You know, prayer is one of the most beautiful things that we have as Christians, right? Whether you're little or big. I, got, I was thinking this week, you know, prayer is that thing that most of us, are praying when we actually come into relationship with Jesus, right? Because we're, we're expressing to him, Lord, I want you to come into my life. Lord, I want you to forgive me. Lord, I want you to, to come and to save me. So it's prayer. And I haven't traveled this road yet, but I've been there with a lot of saints who have. I kind of get the idea that for most of us, the last thing we're doing before we meet him face to face is praying. Because he's with us, his rod and his staff comfort us. And as we're passing through, you know, th- th- those moments into that next life when we're talking to the Lord of Lord, you know, bring me safely home. You know, prayer is such a great thing. And, and so whether you're young or old, and, but I tell you, there's nothing I think more special than as a parent and teaching your kids to pray and hearing the sincerity of their prayers or now as a grandfather. Uh, my daughter-in-law, Lydia, I was talking to her about what I was going to be speaking on this week, and she sent me this video, and I thought, I've just got to show it to you, because it's like one of the most precious things you've ever seen. This is my grandson, little Peter. He's five years old. You're going to pick up through the prayer. This is, this was actually this Thursday, because his daddy just got home from his trip. So, we pray for my daddy, so that I get feeling better, and that they can talk. And they have really good powers, and I find all the other big dinosaurs. And, and we pray for Papa that he gets feeling better, and we pray for that Gramps' toes feel better, and his nose feels better because lots of doctors are going to talk to him, and then. We pray for my toe that it can feel better. And we pray for Daddy that we he got home safely. And we pray for Daddy that he got home today. And we're so happy to see him. And then I got some meebles and me and Josie. So we're so proud of us. Amen. Yeah. Now listen, folks, I, I don't mean to be biased, but if that doesn't move your heart, you got problems, right? Okay, that's just precious. I mean, so, you know, he's praying for his papa, which is one of his great-grandpas, got leukemia. He's praying for uh, Grampers, who is another of his great-grandpas parents who's got blood circulation, has lost a few toes. I don't know what the whole dinosaur thing is and the powers. I figure Jesus knows that and he'll take care of that. But the beautiful thing is, is that God cares and we can bring our requests and God answers those prayers. 
and he wants us to bring him. You know, and, and it's so interesting, you know, as he, as he prays for, for safety and prays for security. And God cares about those issues in our life. But here's the thing. As we grow and as we mature in our faith, and as the gospel continues to impact our life, what we begin to understand is that, yeah, safety is important and security and health and all of this, but, but actually, you know what? This world is in our home. So we begin to pray for more eternal things, and we begin to think of those things that we're going through now, the struggles that we're having, and realize that, you know, maybe God is even through this is is doing some things that are even greater in our life to make us more like Christ. And so how we pray changes. And it, and it develops and it matures. And there's nothing wrong. It's not a right or wrong thing. It's just as we are impacted by the gospel. Well, that's what we see here in Philippians. So we've already seen back in verse 3 and 4 that Paul has been praying for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So he's already told them he's praying for them. But now starting in our text today, verses 9, 10, and 11, he tells them what he's praying for. And these aren't just safety and security and health issues, though I'm sure that those were very realistic. This church is facing persecution. But what he's praying for, though, are things that have an even greater consequence. So let's read the verses together. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes from through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what does he pray for this church? What should you and I be praying for in our own lives and in the lives of others? Well, three things here. The first one is this. What he's praying for is that they would grow in love, that your love may grow more and more. Now, the question is, is he praying that their love for Jesus would grow or is it their love for one another? I think the context is this idea that he's talking about their love for one another because that's a little bit of the context of the book. There's friction. There's a couple ladies that aren't getting along well, and he's going to address this. And so I think it's that sense that they would be growing in their love for one another. It also seems to be consistent with the other prison epistles that Paul writes at this very same time. For instance, the book of Ephesians. He writes it about the same time as this book. And this is what he says. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, saints do not cease to give thanks for you and make mention of you in my prayers. And so the book he's writing about the same time, he's talking about praying for them for their love for the saints. Colossians is another one of the prison epistles. And he writes this, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. 
You remember that he started, when he went to Macedonia, he started in Philippi, and then he went to Thessalonica. When Paul writes to those that, in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is what he, he writes. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. So my sense is, is that what Paul is praying for is that they would grow in their love for other believers. And the reason is, is that this becomes a measuring point of maturity. That for you and I, if we, we're really becoming more like Jesus, this isn't just about growing in knowledge, but this is about we're becoming more like Christ. And if we're going to become more like Christ, then we have to be growing in our love for one another. It's at the heart of who Jesus is. It's at the heart of what he has called us to do. In fact, remember when he gathered the disciples in the upper room before he's going to go to be crucified and he gives them this, a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another and then he really lists the bar even as I have loved you. That you would love one another and by this all men will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Later on, John in his first epistle says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. This is a big thing. You know, Jesus said there are two great commandments. The first is you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? The second's like it, but that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So if we are growing in maturity, if we are growing in Christ-likeness, if, if God is accomplishing in our life that good work, then what ought to be happening, what we ought to be praying for is this growing love. So now you think back to here at Desert Springs. You know, we're talking about making disciples. What does it entail? Well, first of all, you engage with God. You get to know Him. You grow in your knowledge with Him. The second thing is what? You connect with others. Because being invested in other people's lives, growing in your love. You know, if you just become this island to yourself, and you're not connecting with other believers, you're not growing in your love, you just kind of slip it into, you know, at the beginning of the service, slip out, that's all it is. You're not becoming like Christ. Because Christ is a God who loves, and he calls us into community. And so that's the heart of that. Now, he adds this caveat to it, which is really interesting. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The idea of real knowledge here is this idea that we would be able to love one another well. And that's an interesting thought. That we would grow in our love, and yet our love would be with knowledge and discernment. We would love one another well, especially today in our culture. Our culture today describes love in the terms of acceptance. That how you love somebody is that you are willing to accept whatever they want to do, whatever they want to say, you just accept them in essence as they are. Now that sounds really nice and rosy and our culture's bought into that. But anybody who has been a parent realizes that if that's your term of love, you're not going to love your child well, right? 
So your little three-year-old who's just learning to ride his bike wants to go out and ride in the busy road. And we want to be loving and accepting and say, little Johnny, that's great. Are you loving your child well? No, because he's probably going to get hit. Will you love them well when you say, no, little Johnny, we're not going to go ride our bike in the road. You know, we're not going to touch the hot iron uh, oven. We're, we're, to love people well takes wisdom. It takes discernment. It takes that ability at times to say, no, that's not a good idea. You know, folk, I, I, I hope this doesn't come as a newsflash, but Jesus, who was the greatest lover of them all, was not an enabler. And he's not an enabler today. I mean, you think of Jesus with the woman who's taken in adultery, and they want to stone her. Jesus said, okay, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And he bends down and starts writing in the dirt. One of the great questions when we get to heaven is, what did Jesus write in the dirt? Right? Got a sneaking suspicion what he wrote in the dirt were the sins of all the Pharisees who were standing there ready to start throwing stones because they all started leaving one by one. Finally, they're all gone. Jesus looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? They're gone. He goes, well, I don't accuse you either. But go and sin no more. We miss it. But it's there, John chapter 5, this man's been lame for 38 years, laying by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals him, but Jesus' words to him as he gets up and takes his pal and goes, go and sin no more. We don't know the backstory, but Jesus knew it. Even think of the woman at the well who's trying to find love in all the wrong places, right? Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, you don't. You've had five of them. The one you're with now is not your husband. Why? Because you see, she's looking for it in places that's only going to bring pain. He loves her too much. You see, when you love people, you speak truth. And you speak it lovingly, and you speak it with compassion. But you don't just tell people what they want to know or what they want to hear, if that what they want to hear is going to hurt them. He says, what you need to be praying for, and what I'm praying for you, And quite honestly, what you need to be praying for yourself and what you need to be praying for those others in your life, and I hope is what you be praying for me, is that God will cause us and teach us to be able to love and to love well. To love with wisdom. To love enough to sometimes have those hard conversations. To love to be able to forgive. You know, when you think about loving well, my mind ran to 1 Corinthians 13. When Paul lays it out, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous, not boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Wow. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful, always endures through every circumstance, that's how we are to love. And what Paul is saying is, I'm praying that your love for one another will grow more and more. The second thing he prays for is that they'll focus on what's really important, verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. 
in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, before I rush on into this, let me make one small little minor point here, but I think it's an important point. You and I will have a lot better chance of focusing on what's right if we're loving other people well. It's when we get focused on ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, when we start caring about our needs more important, that's when we get focused on the wrong things. And so to see the progression in the prayer, he starts with love others well. Secondly, you're going to prove what, what is really important. Well, that happens a lot easier when we're focused on loving others well. He says, approve what is excellent. That word approve means to test. It was often used with the idea of metals, that they were, the, their quality was proven of gold and of silver and those type of things. He said, man, you need, to be, you need to be focused on what really counts, what really matters, what has excellence here. And I got to be honest with you. If you want to look at the church of Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years, this is something we struggled with. The church is notorious for majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Getting these little pieces of theology, and theology is all good, folk. You've got to understand, I love debating and talking theology. But we get these little pieces of theology, which quite honestly, the greatest minds in, in, in the church history have, have not always seen eye to eye on how it works, but we think we got the corner truth. And, and what we end up doing is we end up pushing people away. We end up causing division. We end up hurting people because they don't see it the way we do. On little things that really, in the big scheme of things, really don't matter all that much. We can get to heaven and let Jesus settle it, and, you know, and then, then we can have a see I told you so moment. But, uh, and there's three things actually in this passage which he reminds us are really important. The first one we've looked at, that what really counts is loving others well. That's important. And when you think about how at times we, we allow our hearts to be lifted up in pride and, and, and the arrogance because we see a passage this way. or we, I mean, think, you know, we're going to look at in just a moment. One of the big things is, is that, you know, the day of Jesus Christ, Jesus is coming back. That's a big thing. That's kind of at the heart of our worldview. But we get so caught up, well, when's it going to happen? Is it going to happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation? How's it going to happen? And we put up all these walls that now divide. Have you ever wondered why we have so many different groups of Christians out there? Sometimes they were over big stuff, but a lot of times they were over these little things about, well, how do we baptize? And how do we look at the, you know, when Jesus is coming back? And the folk, what he's trying to say is what really counts is loving people well. Again, my mind went to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those opening verses, Paul says, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of, even of angels, but I didn't love others, I'd be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plan and possessed all knowledge, 
And if I had faith so that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Keep your eye on the ball. What is the important thing? Well, the first important thing is that we love others well. Secondly, it's that we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us to make us like Christ. It says, in order to be sincere. The word in the Greek has actually, it's a combination word. The the first word is the sun, like the sun in the sky. The second word is to judge. And the idea of the term is that we are to be sincere. We're to be unmixed. So the, the background of it was that they used a lot of clay pottery in that day. That was kind of all the utensils of choice were made of clay. Problem is, you know, with clay, clay can crack, right? And when it gets a crack in it, it may still work, but it doesn't look as good. It looks like it's cracked, and it's a little bit of a weak point. So if you threw away every crack pot, though, you're trying to sell, you, you wouldn't sell a whole lot. So what they would do is they would take wax. And wax was translucent, so it would take the color of the clay, and it would fill the crack so it would look like it was okay. So to be sincere basically means to hold it to the light and there'd be no cracks because when the sun would hit behind where the, the wax was, it was translucent and they would see the crack. To be sincere. That we are who we say we are. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But there's some sincerity about our faith that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And folk, we've seen this. Most of us in our, in, in our lifetime, I mean, think the last 20 years. What has hurt the Church of Jesus Christ in America more than some of our high-profile pastors and preachers who have stood in the pulpit and preached one thing, and then their private life is brought out to be displayed, and it's something completely different. And it's not a one-time momentary, oh, man, I messed up and there's repentance, but it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing piece. And, and they cry hypocrite, right? Because they're right. They're not sincere. And you think about many of your friends you would like to invite in church, but they're afraid to come because of the hypocrites. Because they've seen it. They come and, and they see people who say one thing and act one way on a Sunday, but their lives are completely different. And folk, what he's talking about here is my prayer is that you will understand what's really important. What's really important is that you live in sincerity. That what you, you say you believe is what you practice. And again, it's not that you're perfect. None of us this side of heaven is perfect. But there's a sincerity of when I, when I do drop the ball, that I acknowledge that. I try to make the amends that I try to make. I'm, I'm seeking the Lord's help to walk in, in that integrity of my heart. That you're sincere. The third thing that he mentions is that's really important. First is to love others. Secondly, is to live in sincerity. The third is, is to live in light of the mission that we've been put on. Because one of these days, Jesus is going to come back. I mean, this is the heart of our worldview as a Christian. This world is in our home. Aren't you glad about that? There is a better day coming. And so we live for that day, the day of Jesus Christ, when we will stand before him. That's a big thing. Keep your eyes on the big pieces. Keep the big things the big things. 
you know, it was Jesus' problem with the, uh, with the Pharisees where, you know, you tithe mint and dill. Nothing wrong with that. But in tithing these little herbs, you forget the weightier things of justice and mercy and forgiveness. Keep focused on what's excellent, the important things. Now, the third thing that he mentions is here in verse 11. This is kind of interesting. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I'm sure you're sitting there going, man, what does he mean by the fruit of righteousness? And you know what? You're exactly right. That is the question. You're right on, man. You got it. What does he mean by the fruit of righteousness? Because you have to understand that when Paul wrote, you know, in Koine Greek, you know, they didn't use a lot of punctuation. Uh, and so knowing how he was phrasing this is kind of hard to understand. So it could be, and this is very possible, that what he means when he says being filled with the fruit of righteousness is that day when we stand before Jesus, we've lived sincere and blameless, that we will have that, that practical righteousness that we've lived out, those good works that we have done that will come and they will bring praise to the Lord. That could be what he means. The idea we see in Revelation chapter 19, that when Jesus returns and the church is coming with him, it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the right righteous acts, not of Jesus, but of the saints. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, that on that day our our works will be tried and tested, and some will come out like gold and silver and precious stones. So when he talks about it, what he might mean here is, my prayer is, is that you live sincere and blameless, and on that day you will be filled with the food of righteousness, all this practical righteousness. And that could be. My sense is, though, that's not what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about here is the righteousness which we get from Jesus. In fact, he kind of puts it that way. Uh, verse, verse 11, that fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our God. Uh, and so it seems to be not that practical righteousness, but that imputed righteousness that we get from Jesus. That sense of our identity of who we are in Christ. In fact, if you think ahead You know, Paul's going to use the word righteousness one more time in in chapter 3 when he says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's talking about there that imputed righteousness, that point of when we accepted Christ, he made us righteous, correct? Is that not correct? Okay, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. So I think the sense of this is, is this, that Paul's prayer is on that day that we stand before Jesus, that fruit of righteousness is what he has done for us, that identity that he has given us, that we have now allowed it to manifest itself in our life. We have grown into who he has made us to be because he is in the process of making us in the image of Christ. He gave us a new identity. He made us holy, correct? 
In fact, remember back in the first that we are saints, holy ones, set apart. We're bond servants. It is our identity of who we are. And folk, what you got to understand is this. When we live our identity, when we understand who Jesus has made us and we will allow that to be the foundation of our life, then that will be what the Holy Spirit will continue to use in our life to make us more like Jesus. Let me see if I can explain it. And I don't want you to answer out loud. This is just for you and your heart. But let me ask you a question. Today, for those of you that know Jesus as your Savior, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner who sometimes does some good, righteous things? Or do you see yourself as a righteous person who sometimes sins? Let me ask you another way. Today, do you see yourself as somebody who's working to do good things in order for God to love you? Or do you see yourself as somebody who God absolutely is crazy about and loves? See, there's a huge difference in those two things. And it's all about identity. You see, so many Christians, what the enemy does is he wants us to stay with who we were, that we were sinners. And he doesn't want us to understand that we were sinners, but today we're a new person in Christ and he has made us righteous. And so then when we sin, he goes, look, there it is. You are a sinner. And then we look at that, whatever that thing is that is kind of our thing, whether it's lust and pornography or it's greed or it's pride, and it just keeps raising his head, and he kept saying, see, you'll never overcome that. You will never have victory over that. You can never do it because you are a sinner. And I'm here to tell you, if you know Jesus, he has made you a saint He has made you righteous. He has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. That doesn't mean you're perfect. Because sometimes we walk out of who our identity is. But if you will understand that Jesus has already made you righteous, you don't have to live in that sin. That when Jesus said the truth will make you free, that you you don't have to live in that bondage. When you begin to understand that I am loved, there's nothing I'm going to do today that's going to make me, him love me more. So I'm loved. I, I'm good. Now I can just, out of that relationship, go and serve and tell others about him because I know that even if I, even if I drop the ball today, even if he, he, he loves me, he's crazy about me. You see, I think his prayer is, is that on that day, sincere and blameless before the Lord, having, and it's a past tense, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, the idea is, is that we have been filled, we have been given a new identity in Christ. We are his children. We are loved. We are made holy. That we stand and walk in that, That is what the Holy Spirit will use in our life to make us more like Jesus.